coronary microvascular disease affects a large patient population, and many remain undiagnosed or misdiagnosed in the United States. When a patient complains of chest pain, a number of different tests are performed. However, sometimes patients still go home with discomfort physically and mentally. Thanks for listening to this episode of Banner Health's Making the Rounds, where we speak with medical professionals about different medical topics. And today's episode will highlight how two doctors in Tucson, Arizona, are helping providers understand what coronary microvascular disease is and when it could be their patient's diagnosis. With me today are two providers from Banner University Medical Center, Tucson, Dr. Michelle Corbin, interventional cardiologist, and Dr. Olivia Young, cardiologist. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, Caitlin, for having us. So, Dr. Corbett, could you explain to our listeners a little bit more about coronary microvascular disease? Sure. So, um, so as you said, uh, coronary microvascular disease remains a largely undiagnosed and underdiagnosed or even misdiagnosed um, entity in the United States, and this, this is in both men and women. Um, microvascular um, disease um, is actually a disease of the smallest vessels of the heart. Um, and this is where the term microvascular comes from. Um, these are the um, arteries that uh, feed the heart muscle with blood, um, with oxygen, nutrients, um, and they're actually uh, less than 400 microns in diameter. So any uh, uh, coronary artery that's less than 400 microns is called microvascular uh, vessel <clears throat> or coronary artery. So when we have a problem, um, in getting the blood to the muscle of the heart, the problem could either be in the big fat vessels of the heart, uh, which we normally see on angiography, angiography or CTA um, or any of our other imaging modalities. However, um, these small microvessels of the heart, um, they are not seen by any of our imaging modalities to date. And that's because none of these modalities have good enough resolution to be able to see these very tiny vessels that go into the heart muscle. So basically, um, the way we test uh, um, for their function, um, if we can't see them, um, then we have to basically test how, you know, if they're allowing enough blood flow to the muscle of the heart. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so again, if the muscle doesn't care where the problem is, if it's not getting blood, whether it's in the big fat vessels or in the small vessels. Now, um, microvascular disease in particular remains uh, um, uh, an underdiagnosed entity. Um, and that's just to give you a, a background and the magnitude of the problem we're dealing with. So 50% of patients, uh, both men and women, um, with angina, which is typical chest pain that results from blockages in the arteries of the heart, um, or ischemia, which is an evidence of decreased blood flow to the heart muscle on stress testing, um, they come in to, um, uh, for a coronary angiography. So 50% of these patients that come in for a clinically indicated angiogram, they end up having no obstructive disease in the big fat vessels of the heart. Out of these 50%, um, if we further look into um, the problem in the coronary arteries and test for the function of the small vessels, uh, two-thirds um, or more than 60% of these patients um, will have uh, microvascular dysfunction, whether it's one of the two types or a combined type of microvascular dysfunction. We can talk more about this uh, um, down the line during this podcast. 
This is a topic that both you and Dr. Hung have been studying for years to help patients feel validated, correct? Correct. Yes. Um, yeah, patients sometimes see three or four different doctors and they undergo many tests to look for answers um, as to why they're experiencing the chest pain. Um, sometimes they get an answer and sometimes they don't. Uh, and so for those who don't find an answer, diagnosing microvascular angina could actually create some validation for the patient um, in the sense that we can um, validate that what they're feeling isn't just anxiety or all in their head. And so it becomes more than just a diagnosis. Um, it can actually be a brush of fresh air for the patient and allow them to uh, live their lives going forward and decrease morbidity. Mm -hmm. So you two are going to take us through an example of a patient case um, so we can best understand when a patient might seek further treatment or what some of the risk factors are um, associated with coronary microvascular disease, and lastly, what that treatment looks like. Yeah, so um, they do range from um, a few different types of people, but a patient that, uh, we, that I saw recently uh, was a middle-aged woman. Uh, she was experiencing some chest pain with radiation to her jaw that was worse with exertion and better with rest. In terms of her past medical history, she had uh, high blood pressure as well as high cholesterol levels. She also had a pregnancy history that was significant for preeclampsia. Her family history uh, consisted of a father with a heart attack in his 50s, um, and uh, she knows that there was elevated cholesterol levels that ran through her family. Um, her initial doctor, when she was telling him about the symptoms, uh, did uh, go for a stress test just to evaluate for ischemia, as Dr. Corbin was mentioning. Um, and it was mildly positive, so she actually went through a coronary angiogram, and that was uh, negative and free of major blockages. Um, and so at this point, he has a woman who has pretty much typical angina with an equivalent stress test but a negative coronary angiogram. Um, and so this is actually a, a time when if I had this type of patient, I would actually refer to Dr. Corbin for further evaluation. Yeah, so Olivia, this is a uh, great case, and this is actually a typical um, case um, that we see on a daily basis. Um, so uh, <clears throat> so this is a patient, as Dr. Hung um, uh, alluded, um, so she has typical angina. Um, but she has a negative stress test for blockages in the major arteries of the heart. This is not unusual, um, given that our current modalities of stress tests have very poor sensitivities um, in picking up microvascular dysfunction. And therefore, in order to be able to evaluate and diagnose this patient and give them a firm, definitive diagnosis, um, uh, we need to move forward with further advanced testing. One of these testing uh, modalities, and the most comprehensive to date, um, is coronary activity testing. Um, and this is a procedure that we do in the cath lab. Um, and as I said before, these small vessels, we can't see them on angiography, but we can test for their function uh, by giving uh, uh, medications called adenosine and acetylcholine um, into the coronary arteries and testing for the change in blood flow in addition to the change in the caliber um, uh, or the diameter of the coronary arteries. So this is a patient um, that we basically took to the cath lab um, and we did a coronary activity testing um, on her. 
Um, and it turns out that she had both types of microvascular dysfunction, um, the endothelial dependent and the endothelial independent microvascular dysfunction. Now, what we have done is more than just a diagnostic test. As Dr. Hung has uh, said, um, first we have validated this patient's symptoms because these patients normally, um, they have seen a couple cardiologists, um, they have done a couple stress tests, which all came back negative, um, and they have done a couple angiograms for the big fat vessels of the heart, uh, which also came back negative with no blockages as expected. Um, and then they also had a couple maybe ER visits. Um, and then finally, they get referred for this diagnostic test. So once they get a diagnosis, um, this is where things, this is the turning point for these patients. So first they get validated um, that yes, um, this is related to their heart. It's not in their mind. It's not in their head. It's not psychotic. Uh, uh, it's not a psychotic disease. They're not crazy. Um, and believe it or not, these patients uh, um, get labeled as psychotic or they get labeled as crazy before they come to see us. So first we validate um, their symptoms. Uh, we give them a firm diagnosis. And then from here on starts the, um, the journey of treating um, these patients. And, you know, um, we, we'll, we're probably going to talk a little bit more about that, but we have firm data now to show that, you know, taking that further step in diagnosing these patients in the cath lab and then treating them based on the phenotype of the problem they have um, actually helps improve their symptoms and improve their quality of life. So, so this is not only a label that we give to these patients for the disease, um, but actually uh, it's an actionable uh, um, entity that we can treat and make patients feel better. That's great. And that's really important for patients to have that validation. So when we look at, um, you know, risk factors associated with the disease, what are some of those that um, either patients or providers while they're with their patients should look out for? Yeah, so a lot of the risk factors are going to be uh, very familiar with our audience because they are some of the same risk factors that we look for in cardiac ischemia. These include uh, personal histories of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, uh, smoking history, or significant amounts of work stress, um, as well as a family history of coronary disease, uh, including heart attacks and strokes. Um, and then finally, for women, uh, the pregnancy history becomes important to make sure uh, that they haven't had uh, risk factors such as preeclampsia. Now, one may wonder, when a patient doesn't have any blockages found in the major arteries, whether that's on a coronary CT angiogram or on a regular coronary angiogram, uh, when we should be referring to Dr. Corbin? Should we be referring every single person like this to them? After all, this is an invasive procedure. Uh, so what considerations should we be thinking about? Uh, why is it important to get this diagnosis and what are the complications and potential risks of undergoing another procedure like this? Yeah, this is an excellent question, um, Dr. Hung. Um, so, you know, what we know um, about uh, coronary microvascular dysfunction is that it is not a benign disease. So starting by saying that, uh, we know that coronary microvascular dysfunction, when present, uh, 
and independent of the risk factors um, resulting in microvascular dysfunction. So when, when in studies we adjusted for all the risk factors associated with microvascular disease, um, coronary microvascular dysfunction was still an independent predictor of five times increased risk of death and four times increased risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, including heart attacks, strokes, um, uh, um, and therefore, coronary microvascular dysfunction is really not a benign disease. When you look at the risk in uh, some of the studies, including the women's ischemia trial, the WISE study, um, you could see that you know the risk of um, of MACE um, in these patients um, is up towards eight percent. Um, whereas the risk of doing a coronary activity testing in the cath lab and diagnosing these patients, uh, giving them a, a firm diagnosis and treating them to first decrease their symptoms, improve their quality of life, and decrease the risk of death and major adverse cardiovascular events um, is, is actually less than 1%. Um, and more specifically, in the recent data we had, it's close to 0 0.7, 0.7%. Um, then, you know, looking at the, the benefits of diagnosing these patients and treating them to decrease their high risk of events um, and improving their, their symptoms and function versus the very low risk of these invasive procedures um, to get a diagnosis and treat accordingly, I think the balance tips clearly towards, you know, um, uh, towards uh, benefit rather than any risk. Um, yes, it's an invasive procedure. It does have uh, um, uh, low risk associated with it, but I think the risk is uh, very worth uh, um, uh, taking, um, given the benefits that these patients will reap out of the uh, out of firm diagnosis and treatment. So to follow up on what Dr. Hung said, Dr. Corbin, can you explain why this is an important disease to diagnose? Yes. So again, as as I said. Um, it's, it's not only improving patients' uh, uh, symptoms and quality of life and validating their symptoms uh, with treatment uh, and, and diagnostic strategies, uh, but also to decrease the risk of having uh, uh, major adverse cardiovascular events and decreasing the risk of dying. Uh, we have now two meta-analyses that have been recently published. Um, they have both shown that there is significantly increased risk of death um, and uh, uh, major adverse events with, uh, um, with coronary microvascular dysfunction. So it's not a benign disease. It's a disease that we need to look for, um, and it's a disease that we need to diagnose and treat in order to decrease the risk of, uh, um, of major adverse events, to decrease the patient's risk of heart attacks and strokes. Um, now, more importantly as well, um, in addition to decreasing the risk, um, of these major um, adverse events. Um, recent studies have shown that uh, microvascular dysfunction um, is not limited to the heart. And that makes sense. Um, every single organ in our body is uh, lined, um, or every vessel in our body is lined with endothelial cells. Um, and every organ um, uh, in our bodies um, um, actually have smaller vessels that feed in uh, that organ, and these are the microvessels. So whatever is happening or affecting the, ves the, the small vessels of the heart might also be affecting the small vessels of other organs, including the brain, the eyes, the kidneys. Um, so we have recently learned 
that microvascular dysfunction not only affects the heart, but also affects all these other organs. Um, and therefore, treatment of microvascular disease um, of the heart might also have off-target benefit to other organs, um, including all the organs that I just listed. Um, and a very in interesting recent um, study um, that was conducted in Glasgow in Scotland, um, they actually um, looked at patients with coronary microvascular dysfunction um, that were symptomatic, um, and then they did coronary activity testing on these patients. Um, and then they took also another group of patients um, that were controls that did not have coronary microvascular dysfunction. Both of these groups, um, they had uh, gluteal subcutaneous fat biopsies done um, in order to look at the function of the small vessels in the subcutaneous fat of the gluteus uh, muscle. And therefore, what, what, they, what they showed, interestingly, is that patients with microvascular dysfunction in the heart, they also have microvascular dysfunction um, in their subcutaneous gluteal uh, um, uh, microvessels, uh, which tells us that these patients that, that these patients get to our attention because the heart uh, um, causes symptoms with chest pain um, when microvascular disease uh, uh, develops. Um, whereas, but, but in reality, these patients might also have systemic uh, uh, microvascular dysfunction affecting multiple areas and multiple organs of the body. So that's another reason why diagnosing these patients and treating them um, would, uh, uh, would, would uh, help decrease the risk of uh, not only cardiac events, but also rather non-cardiac uh, um, events uh, down the line. I just want to clarify a very important thing, and, and this is probably very relevant to our uh, uh, listeners. Um, so fir first, I want to make sure that uh, this label that microvascular um, dysfunction is a woman's disease um, is not entirely true. Uh, we do see microvascular disease and dysfunction um, in both men and women. There might be a little more pre uh, um, prevalence of microvascular disease in women, um, but it's not definitely entirely um, a, a woman's disease. So that is, that, that's to keep in mind. So if, if there is a man with typical angina or ischemia on a stress test um, with no blockages in the big fat vessels of their heart, um, this is the time to refer these patients to us um, for evaluation, for further testing um, with the coronary activity test. So what is coronary activity testing? Um, as I explained, it's, a, it's the um, single most comprehensive test um, for evaluation and diagnosis of endothelial and microvascular um, dysfunction of the coronary arteries of the heart. Um, so we are, uh, um, interestingly, um, there are only a handful uh, um, centers, and these are big academic centers in the United States who do this coronary activity testing. Um, by virtue of my training at the Mayo Clinic uh, in Rochester before joining um, Banner University Medical Center here in Tucson, um, I was trained um, to do these procedures um, and I was trained to diagnose and treat these patients um, in addition to my active research um, program um, in, this, in this field for the past 10 years. Uh, we've already started actually our outpatient clinic um, so we're seeing these patients, we're getting referrals internally and externally um, in order to see these patients and uh, um, evaluate them 
um, and then uh, um, uh, schedule them for this coronary activity testing. Um, in addition to our clinical work, uh, we are actually bringing two research trials to the University of Arizona and Banner University Medical Center uh, in Tucson, investigating um, two new modalities or treatment modalities um, for patients with coronary microvascular dysfunction. Now, importantly, we have to realize that uh, once we get a diagnosis for these patients and we start treating them, um, 60 to 70 percent of these patients get better. Uh, with treatment, as we said, they have improved uh, symptoms and improved quality of life. However, there is 30% of these patients um, that are refractory to our current uh, standard medical therapy. And this is where the importance of these two trials that we're getting here uh, plays a role. So the first one is a stem cell trial. Uh, it's the patient's own stem cells. Um, these are endothelial stem cells um, that we harvest uh, from their bone marrow and then we uh, inject into their coronary arteries to help improve their microvascular function when they're refractory to medical therapy or they're still having symptoms on maximally tolerated therapies. Um, and then the second uh, trial that I started at the Mayo and we are becoming a second site for it here um, is called a coronary sinus reducer uh, uh, trial. And this is a device um, that actually uh, um, is implanted in the coronary sinus of the heart um, and we're testing if it's going to help improve the uh, uh, symptoms and microvascular function uh, in these patients refractory to other, other therapies. Wow, those are really interesting. And this is really innovative medicine and discovery in heart care. And I'm really excited that we're going to help, you know, patients not be labeled crazy and help them kind of understand why they're having increased anxiety with no diagnosis. So, but I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to educate our, our listeners about this topic. Is there anything else that you want to add or make sure that we cover? I would really encourage every uh, primary care physician, every cardiologist, or any other specialty uh, physician who is listening to us, if you have a patient that is having chest pain um, or have a typical angina or have ischemia on a stress test um, and there are no blockages on the coronary angiogram and the big fat vessels, send them to us. We can help. Uh, and we're, we're uh, um, always available. Um, reach out to us um, and we'll be more than happy to uh, guide the next steps in your patient's uh, evaluation and treatment. Great. Well, thank you both again. Our listeners can learn more about these topics by visiting bannerhealth.com backslash services backslash heart. Thanks, Galen. Thank you, Galen, for having us. Mm-hmm.